One thing that I've really gleaned from the book is how God's word should impact our daily life. That if we if we have faith in God and we believe his word is true, then that's going to affect the, our decisions involving family or business or future. And the people that we're going to read about today, they played a role in reestablishing uh, Jerusalem as the holy city where God's presence dwelt. And they made a lot of sacrifices to do that, and they gladly did so. And I wonder, in your family, is there a legacy or through the years, people who have followed the Lord, you have that in your family where you can say, you know, my father, he followed the Lord. And my grandfather, he followed the Lord. And um, some of you might have that. Others, you can look back to your history and say, you know, I don't have that at all. I don't have really a, um, a history of a family whose God was the Lord. But know that a checkered history or, or a lack of uh, that sort of thing in your past, it doesn't have to hinder you because it can start with you. And you don't even need to have children to pass on the love of Jesus, the truth of the gospel, and to find, to have people that you've impacted through the Lord, the Lord's impacted them through you, that they continue on with the Lord. And a new legacy begins. That's God's legacy. It's not ours. So praise God for that. Um, I was reading in Deuteronomy this week, Deuteronomy 12, 28, in my morning devotions, and there's this great blessing for the obedient. It says, Observe and obey all these words which I command you, that it may go well with you and your children after you forever when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord, your God. So when we choose to follow God and our children follow the Lord, there's an eternal blessing that God will provide. Now, we can't control the future decisions of generations, can we? But we can choose for us that God will be my God and I will honor and serve him. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are a great God, that you're eternal, you are glorious, and we desire, Lord, to please you today in the reading of your word, in the fellowship of the saints, and thank you that you have made us one through Jesus Christ, that we have been accepted in the beloved and uh, may Jesus truly be the beloved of our souls. Thank you that you love us the way you do, that you demonstrated that on the cross through his sacrifice. And I pray, Lord, that we too would lay down our lives for one another. We would lay down our lives for you in submission, desiring for you to have your way in us, in future generations, and forever. Lord, we love you and praise you for allowing us to gather today and to read your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So Nehemiah 11, if you look at the history of the Jews, you'll see that as a nation, they've experienced many hardships, yet through it all, God enabled them to thrive and survive. Last year, I went to Jerusalem, and I have some pictures that will show throughout the message today. Um, but one thing that was really neat, I'd never been there during a holy day or a, a feast, and so I went during Sukkot which is a Feast of Tabernacles. And it was neat to see people from all over the world who showed up and they've got their little trees and their lemon and different things that they use for their um, celebration. And it's like there's been times in their history when you wouldn't have seen those smiling faces there. You wouldn't have seen pilgrims come from all over the world. And that was the time in Nehemiah's day where the walls had been broken down. It wasn't a destination. Uh, it was a ruin, more or less. But God put upon Nehemiah's heart to go and return to build the walls of Jerusalem and make it a viable city again where people could actually live in safety, where God could be worshipped in the temple. And this all came together uh, in Nehemiah's day with uh, great rejoicing and singleness of mind and a, really a revival where people are like, we want to hear from God. We want you to read the law to us. We want to know what to do. And we want to look at our lives and see that we're living in the way that pleases God. And so, um, no matter where you find yourself, know that you may, you may read that, I guess, uh, promise of God that it may go well with you and things may not seem to be going well right now. But don't doubt God's word based upon your circumstances. Choose to believe God's word and obey him. He sees the big picture. God saw 
what Israel is now and what it will be in the future. And there's been many years where it wasn't a happy place. But by God's grace, um, Romans in 8.18, Paul said, I'm convinced the sufferings in this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And we can celebrate um, God's promises. So Nehemiah 11, starting in verse 1. Now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. These are the heads of the province who dwell in Jerusalem. But in the cities of Judah, everyone dwelt in his own possession in their cities, Israelites, priests, Levites, Nethanim, and descendants of Solomon's servants. The leaders, it says, lived in Jerusalem, and 10% of the people were chosen to live and inhabit the holy city in Jerusalem itself. And so they drew lots to do this. Jerusalem was the capital city of Judah, and people from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin were chosen to dwell there. And uh, if you could show that first picture with the, the scapegoat, the lots, the only time lots are mentioned in the Bible, well, not in the Bible, but in the Torah, so that's in the first five books of the Bible, that was the scapegoat in Leviticus 16, verse 8. So what they would do is they would have those two lots, and they would be inside that box. And they would draw lots, one lot, so they had two goats. One of the goats would be for the Lord. That one would be offered as a sacrifice. The other lot was to be released into the wilderness. And so that's the way that they drew lots. It was like for the Lord, sacrifice, or one that would um, be released. Um, we're not told how Nehemiah cast lots, but we know that why he did it to discern the mind of God. So I really don't know how lots were cast, but they believed that God would direct which one was the right one. Thanks for that. Um, Solomon wrote in Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So they didn't see casting lots as a random thing, like you're rolling the dice and, oh, it's just chance. They didn't see it that way. They drew lots to know the mind of God and who should live where. And this made a huge impact on your life because, remember, people had received their inheritance of land. This had been passed down from generation to generation. There was farmers. There were herdsmen. There were neighbors that you'd had for years and years, for hundreds of years. And so if your name was chosen, you would be living in Jerusalem now, a city boy, right? You go from living in the country, you may have to change your profession. You, you were going to have different neighbors. You were going to have to give up the land that was your inheritance that had been passed down to choose to, hey, God chose me. I am going to willingly live in Jerusalem. Do you think that would be a, a pretty high cost to have to move? from that land and from that creek and from those people that you were familiar with. It says that the people willingly offered themselves, verse 2, to dwell at Jerusalem. So if they were chosen, they willingly offered themselves. And, and they, some may even have volunteered and said, hey, you don't even need to choose my name. I'm there. I want to dwell where the presence of God is. Jerusalem had a bullseye on it. It was a capital city. It's the place where people would attack. But they weren't fussed by that at all. They wanted to be near the presence of God. They were blessed by others and people for it. Okay, verse 4. Now hang with me. There are some names here. I know how frightening names can be. God willing, we will understand what he has to say to us. And I won't butcher them too badly. Also in Jerusalem dwelt some of the children of Judah and of the children of Benjamin, the children of Judah, Athaiah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, the son of Shephatiah, the son of Mahalalel, of the children of Perez, and Maaseiah, the son of Baruch, son of Kolhose, the son of Hazaiah, the son of Adaiah, the son of Jehoiarib, the son of Zechariah, the son of Shiloni. 
All the sons of Perez who dwelt at Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. And these are the sons of Benjamin. Salu, the son of Meshulam, the son of Joed, the son of Pedaiah, the son of Kolaiah, the son of Maaseiah, the son of Ithiel, the son of Jeshaiah, and after him Gabai and Salai, 928. Joel, the son of Zikri, was their overseer, and Judah, the son of Senua, was second over the city. Of the priests, Jediah, the son of Jehoiarib, and Jachin, Saraiah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Meshulam, the son of Zadok, the son of Meraioth, the son of Ahitab, was the leader of the house of God. So those who dwelt in Jerusalem, their lineage could be traced back for generations. They were proven to be uh, Israelites by genealogy, by birth. And there were valiant men, there were priests, and the leader of the house of God, the high priest. And I think it's amazing how these generations stayed faithful to the Lord all the way down. Any one person along that way chose to depart from the Lord and to forfeit their role. Well, then, um, Sarahiah is not the leader of the house of God. If you remember Eli, right, he wasn't faithful to discipline his sons according to God's word, and his line was cut off. He was no longer able to be high priest, nor were his sons. One person who may seem insignificant, where we go, you know, that, that person, his name is in the Bible, but he really has no biblical significance. I beg to differ. There is significance in them because it's through them this genealogy has come. They were faithful to the Lord, and God enabled that line to continue. John said he had no greater joy than to hear his children walked in the truth. And these weren't his children by genetic descent. They were those that he had taught the word of God. And they followed in his footsteps in following Jesus. Now, as parents, if you are born again, I'm sure you desire that your children would also follow Jesus. You've made a decision to follow Christ And it's important to you that people that you know, people that you love, maybe even a stranger on the street, they too, you want them to follow Jesus because you realize that in him is life and an abundant life. Now, we can put the pressure on ourselves to to think it falls to us to force or make our children decide to follow Jesus and what that's going to look like. Like, I want to have this legacy of faith where... Five generations from now, my children are still following the Lord, so I am going to really hammer it home to my kids to make sure that they do the right thing. Now, ultimately, our kids' choices are not our choices, right? They get to make their own choices. And instead of worrying about what's out of our control, it's best for me to ensure that I am being the child of God I should be. If I want my children to walk in God's ways, if I want them to be a child of God, then I should be demonstrating that, not just talking about it, not just concerning myself with how can I change their externals to make them do something, rather than am I walking with God? Am I being a child of God? And if so, God will. This is his legacy, not mine. And so we don't have to put pressure on ourselves. Now, we do have the responsibility to train our children in righteousness, to love them as Christ has loved us. But Nehemiah, he had no wife, no children as a eunuch. But through his prayerful and decisive action, God made him most fruitful. Think of the fruit, the spiritual fruit that came from his decision to pray and to obey God, where all these people are now united, reading the word, doing the work of the ministry. It's exciting. It's exciting to see that we could have a part in facilitating that. So Sarahiah, he was the leader of the house of God, the son of Hilkiah, Meshulam, Zadok, Meriaoth, and Ahitab. In one sense, we need to be content to be anonymous. That people don't, we don't need to have some great reputation as a, as a, a pillar of the faith, that people will look to us and come to us for approval and and to seek our wisdom or something. We need to be turning that towards the Lord. 
Um, so anonymous in one sense, that we don't want any recognition. But on the other hand, we're not to be anonymous Christians because Jesus is our life. We're to boldly proclaim him and to speak him freely. Uh, have you ever heard of, of people who live vicariously through their children in sport? Right? They weren't really the athlete, but their son's got potential and, or daughter. And they're really going to invest and kind of put pressure on them to, to play this sport and to excel and, and, uh, you know, year round they're playing these sports. Not, not so, I mean, the kid wants to please his dad and so, and he enjoys it to an extent, but the dad's really, or the mom is really pushing it. And we can do the same thing with spiritual things, can't we? We're not really walking with the Lord so much, but we really want it for our kids. And so we are going to uh, almost live vicariously through them. We want we push them to do things that we're not being obedient in. So let's be the ones. Hey, because following Jesus is not like sport, where the body grows weary. In fact, uh, when we get older, the Lord will give us his spiritual strength. So we're not reliant upon our flesh anymore. We look to him to supply everything. And so may that be for us that instead of living vicariously through others and hoping that they will pass on the torch, you be the mantle bearer. You be the one to follow Jesus. You be the child of God. You want others to be the one that we should be. Verse 12. Their brethren who did the work of the house were 822. And Adaiah, the son of Joram, the son of Pelaliah, the son of Amzi, the son of Zechariah, the son of Pashur, the son of Malchijah, and his brethren, heads of the father's houses, were 242. And Amashai, the son of Azarel, the son of Azai, the son of Meshelemoth, the son of Immer, and their brethren, mighty men of valor, were 128. Their overseer was Zabdiel, the son of one of the great men. I love that. He a son of a gr- one of the great men. We don't know which one, but hey, it was a great man. All up, there's 1,192 priests who lived in Jerusalem and did the work of the house of God. And that's the point that I wanted to draw out here, that there was a lot of work to do in the temple, and it was done 24 hours a day. Zabdiel was the overseer. They had many duties in the holy place, the maintenance of the light. You've seen the menorah. Right, That was to burn 24 hours a day. They needed to provide oil from it to trim the wicks, uh, the table of showbread, the offering of incense on the altar of incense, watching it over, keeping it clean. And they were also involved in the daily burnt offering. Every day in, in Jerusalem, there would be a morning sacrifice and there would be an evening sacrifice. And the priest was involved in that. But you think about a thousand plus priests doing the work. They would be rotating through shifts. They would uh, be on like a fireman, you know, maybe 24 hours a day, take a couple days off, and then 24 hours a day on. And I remember walking up the southern steps in the temple, uh, Temple Mount. If you could bring up the next picture. Yeah, we've seen that one before. Okay, so this is uh, actually outside the Jerusalem archaeological facility. This, you're looking up toward the Temple Mount. This is the southern side of the Temple Mount. If you could show the next picture, uh, you can see towards the bottom, the steps are really uneven. If you look to the left, these are the steps going up. So when you went up to a sacrifice, you would walk up the southern steps. After you had bathed in the mikvah, you would be ceremonially pure, and you would go up these steps. Those steps to the left, those have been remade. They're not original. The ones straight ahead, those are, yes, those are the original stones. That's looking towards the Mount of Olives in the distance. That's covered with tombs. Okay, so that's that's what you're seeing in the distance. When you talk about the work, one thing that they did on the southern steps was they made the tread height and depth of different levels. You know when you're walking up steps, the tread the tread's off by an inch and you kick your toe. Have you ever done that? Or they're really, really steep? Well, the steps going up the southern side, they were different depths and, and uh, heights so that you could never walk up out of habit. The idea was that you would always be mindful of where you were going. 
not to go casually or habitually up to the temple, but you would realize with every step that you were approaching the presence of God, you were getting closer to God with every moment. And so to take that so seriously. So that was going into why they built those steps that way. is because they wanted people's minds to be engaged and their hearts to be engaged with God. Now, what's an implication that they would even think to build the steps in that way? Well, because what can inspire awe one day and gratefulness can turn into a mindless habit the next. And I bet you, even though they made those steps different heights and depths, it wasn't but a few months and those priests could walk up them blindfolded. They could just rattle off their prayers in their sleep. It could... The work of the ministry can become a job where you're really not inspired to do it. You're just showing up, putting in a day's work, and going home. It's not touching your heart anymore. Doing the same thing day after day can become a dutiful grind rather than a joyful privilege. Even for a priest, let's not kid ourselves. So the things that we do for the Lord, it's possible that we too could turn it into a grind and just get like, ah, it's the same thing. Um, you know, how many times have, have we prayed because it was the hour of prayer? Rather, it wasn't because we wanted to seek the Lord's face or hear from him. It was just, hey, this is when I pray. So that's why I'm praying. Or, uh, you know, we prepared a Bible study because Friday was coming up or Wednesday was coming up and it would be really embarrassing for us if people came and we didn't have anything. What sort of motivation is that? So you're not embarrassed? Probably better to be embarrassed and to admit that you're not, your heart's really not in it than to just churn out something, right? How many times do we mouth words of praise when our hearts and our minds were not engaged at all with what we were saying? It was just, it was a habit. And we can easily lose sight of the awesome God who's called us, the one who's set up, he's given us work to do. If your job is to put the oil in and to cut those wicks in the holy place, that is a special job. If your job, as we're going to see, is to work to fix the building or to uh, be the gatekeeper, that's an important job too. And even as a Gentile who doesn't have any of those uh, specialized roles in the temple, our Hearts can still praise God. We don't need to have a particular role in a church because what some might consider ordinary work, it can become holy ground as you do it unto the Lord. So you can get up early, not just for a paycheck, but you can get up for God um, and head off to work for the corporation. It's not for the corporation. It's for God. You're doing it for him. You're not doing it to get a paycheck. You're not doing it for you. Sure, you do get a paycheck by his grace, but you're doing it for him. And how good it is when that begins to flood into our life. When we realize this whole, this, we have a holy God and he gives us things to do that can become, let's say we become weary in the work. But let's return to that place just through repentance and say, Lord, I haven't been doing this unto you, whether it's a thing in the church or whether it's something at home or at work where you're just like gritting your teeth to do it. Do it unto Jesus. If we give a glass of water to a thirsty person in Jesus' name, he says, I will reward you for that. It's like you gave it to me. You can cook, you can clean, you can do the washing, you can go to work, you can mow the lawn with thanksgiving to God and do it for him. And then there's joy in it because it's his work. Verse 15. Also of the Levites, Shemaiah the son of Hashub, the son of Azrikam, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Bunny or Bunai, Shebathai and Josabad of the heads of the Levites had the oversight of the business outside of the house of God. Mataniah the son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, the leader who began the thanksgiving with prayer. Bakbukiah, the second among his brethren, and Abdiah, the son of Shemua, the son of Galal, the son of Jeduthun. All the Levites in the holy city were 284. The work in the temple was assigned to the priests. 
there was work given to the Levites outside the house of God. So this was maintenance, some of the custodial duties that fell to them, many of the menial roles, uh, like cleaning the floors and um, washing things and making sure that the water was there and the, the firewood and things of that nature. There were some occasions when the priests were in short supply. They hadn't sanctified themselves. The Levites, they stepped in to help with the sacrifice. Another role of the Levites was to teach the law of God. In Deuteronomy 33.10, it says they would travel around and they would teach people about how who God is and how to honor him, what his laws say. And that, that reminds me of the roles that we have as Christians to be his ambassadors, to tell other people about Jesus and to live in the way that directs people to him. We all have different roles and giftings through the Holy Spirit according to his will, and we're called to advance his kingdom, not our agendas, to make disciples of Jesus everywhere. Now, in Matthew Henry's commentary, he wrote something where he applied, or he he looked at this picture of the Levites having the outside work and the priests having the work in the temple. He compared it to different roles in the church. He says, Those who take care of the outward concerns of the church, the serving of its tables, are as necessary in their place as those who take care of its inward concerns, who give themselves to the word and prayer. And I love that passage where the the apostles hear of this need, the the widows, the Greek widows were being neglected in the daily uh, giving. And they realize that they weren't able to both stay true to their calling as being in the word and prayer and and meet this other need. And so they talked to the people and they said, seek out among yourselves men who are filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom that we can appoint over this work. And so the people got together, they prayed and they chose seven people, seven guys to be about this business. And... Since we've been born again, God has designated roles for us, right? The Levites, they were of the tribe of Levi. Those who were the priests were of Aaron's descent. He was of Levi, but he was anyone from Aaron, they were qualified to be a priest. And then the high priest, it passed down through generations. Now we, we are born again. And so we are now all kings and priests unto God. We all have specific roles and callings that he has upon us, whether uh, uh, there's, a, there's lists of them there, where there's apostles and pastors and teachers and evangelists and down the line. I wonder if there were some Levites who said, you know what, I wish I'd have been up Aaron's line. I really feel left out. I should be in there. And we had kings that did that, if you read the scripture. Where, uh, was that Hezekiah? I can't remember. I believe it was an ayah at the end of it. But he decided he was going to offer incense one day. And it's not for him to do. He should never have been there. And I wonder if there's some priests who are like, oh man, it'd be so nice to not have to take my work home with me. I would love to just be the groundskeeper. You know, fix a couple of things here and there. Don't have to be involved with this, you know, all, night shift all the time. Watching the menorah burn down. This isn't what I, this isn't what I would choose for myself. Well, you know, if God chooses you to something, who are we to question it? Shouldn't we embrace it and realize that God has chosen us to do something for Him, whatever it may be? And that it's a great thing because it's for a great God and that's the point. It's not because the job is so great. It's because we have a great God. He's told us to do something. He's equipped us to do it. He's chosen us to follow him. So a Levite doesn't need to feel his role is any less important when he's fixing a hinge as the priest who's offering the sacrifice on the altar in front of everyone. God should receive credit for everything. I like what Jesus said. He says, after we, after you've done everything God's commanded you to do, in Luke 17.10, he says, we are unprofitable servants. We have only done what was our duty to do. So in the end, you can look at your life and say, I haven't accomplished anything. 
I haven't done anything, but God has done great things. God has done the work, and he's done it in my life. He's done it through my life, and praise him for it. We can't take credit for that. We can try, but it won't stick, because that's God's credit. That's God's glory. Do you want to be one who who works righteousness and obtains the promises? That's what I want to be. I want to be one that obtains the promises. doesn't just talk about God's promises, but actually experiences the promise. Actually hears him speaking through his word. Nehemiah 11, verse 19. Moreover, the gatekeepers, Akub, Talman, their brethren who kept the gates, were 172. And the rest of Israel, of the priests and Levites, were in all the cities of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. But the Nethanim dwelt in Ophel. And Ziha and Gishba were over the Nethanim. Also the overseer of the Levites at Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micah, of the sons of Asaph, the singers in charge of the service of the house of God. For it was the king's command concerning them that a certain portion should be for the singers, a quota day by day. Pethahiah, the son of Meshezabel, of the children of Zerah, the son of Judah, was the king's deputy in all matters concerning the people. The Nethanim, just so you know, they were temple servants. They served in a capacity. I believe they are distinct from the Gibeonites. Um, I didn't do a whole lot of study into it, but they were a group of people that were probably carrying the water. They would bring the water from the brook in. And uh, But the main thing here, the gatekeepers. So we've talked about the priests, talked about the Levites, and now the gatekeepers. There were 172 gatekeepers. They were like security guards, basically, making sure that people had a right to go into the place where they went. If you could show that picture from the Temple Institute, please. Um, this is a really good model. It's, it's in the Temple Institute, which is no longer on display. It was on display in 2005. The last three years that I went, it was not seen. So it's kind of cool to have this picture. Um, as you can see, there are several gates. See that big golden gate at the bottom? Now, if you were a Gentile, you could never go inside the structure, period. You were prohibited from entering in. So that gatekeeper would keep out Gentiles. In that first large courtyard, that is called the Court of Women. That's the location where Jesus would have seen. They had the different treasuries, and they were in the Court of Women, where Jewish women and and men could go, and you would see people putting money into the treasuries. And if you look further, so each level is a, a different level that you have to obtain to be able to enter in. Or not really that you have to obtain, but you have to be. Like you have to be a man to go past that next door, to go into the inner court. Okay, that's uh, so past those doors, that's the area where the sacrifice would be. Only men, Levites, and priests can go into that area. Jewish. Past the inner court, you go into the holy place. You go into the temple. Priests could go through that door. Then there was another door inside, the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest, it was a veil, it was a a large curtain, only the high priest one day a year could enter in on the Day of Atonement to atone for the sins of the people with the blood of the sacrifice that he would sprinkle on the Ark of the Covenant. So you see the pictures of the really shiny, clean Ark of the Covenant? It didn't look like that. It was a a bloody mess to atone, to cover for the sins of the people. So you see, the gatekeepers had a pretty important job to make sure that, hey, whoa, whoa, tourist Gentile, you are not permitted to go in this area. You cannot go. I am sorry. And so they would ensure that uh, the gates were opened for worship in the morning and they were closed at night. So very vigilant to ensure the temple remained unpolluted. They kept an eye on the treasuries. You know, I I wonder. I, I don't think people have changed. Um, but that would be pretty brazen, I think, to go into the treasury and try to carry one of those things out. I think they were pretty big, too. 
Anyway, they would leave they would leave them there for months before they pulled the money out of it. Now David, he wrote a song about being a doorkeeper, and we sing it sometimes. I don't think it's the song exactly that David sung, but it's taken from it. If you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 84, verses 8 through 12. Anyone here ever worked in security? Any security guards here? No security guards. I had a friend once, uh, while you're turning there, just share the story. I, I don't really think this is indicative of security guards everywhere. But for some people, this might be. This was his impression of his old job. He's like, yeah, Ben, I think I want to go back to being a security job, uh, security guard. I could sleep a lot more on the job then. Huh? Like, what? Did you just say that to me as an apprentice? Mm. He wasn't an apprentice for very much longer. I think he went back to security. I don't know how secure the locations were where he was guarding, based upon what he was saying. But the point is... Uh, this guy had a very low, so this guy who worked as a security guard had a very low view of the importance of the job. Didn't take it very seriously, but David took being a doorkeeper in the house of God very seriously. As we read in Psalm 84, starting in verse 8, it says, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. He so relished the courts of God, being near the presence of God, he says, there's no place I'd rather be. I, I'd rather be here than anywhere else for a thousand days. Like, just to be here for a day in the presence of God, doing his work. He, he, David didn't need to feel like, I need to be a priest to really feel important. He's like, if I could just be a doorkeeper, that would be awesome, because we serve an awesome God. He's a sun and a shield. He does not withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. He gives grace and glory. He's almighty. He hears prayers. So these tasks that some people might even sleep through, he's like, this is an amazing, awesome task to serve God. Night shift as a gatekeeper. Not much going on, but God, he's alive. And his ears are open. Isn't that great? So in addition to the doorkeepers, we have the singers, the sons of Asaph. It says they were in charge of the service of the house of God. And the singers were a permanent fixture after the ark of God was moved to Jerusalem. In Psalm 137, it said when they were taken captive, they hung up their harps. Their hearts just weren't in it anymore, having to leave Jerusalem, the place where God's presence was. And their captor said, hey, sing us a song. Sing us one of your, you know, one of your holy songs. They just go, how can we do that? How can we sing a song when, you know, Jerusalem's in ruins and the temple's been destroyed? And now having come back, the singers are in place, the sons of Asaph. Now, Asaph was a Levite, a prophet. He was the chief worship leader when David was king. Very skilled. He wrote uh, Psalm 50, Psalm 73 through 83, so he's written... Uh, 12 psalms ascribed to him through the Holy Spirit. And he's saying of the goodness of God in Psalm 79, 13. He says, So we, your people and the sheep of your pasture, will give you thanks forever. We will show forth your praise to all generations. This is hundreds of years after Asaph has passed away, but the sons of Asaph and those trained by them continue to write music, continue to sing these songs to the Lord and praise him. And interesting that the king of Persia recognized their role. It said in verse 23, for it was the king's command concerning them that a certain portion should be for the singers a quota day by day. Israel did not have a king at this time, so in context it would stand to reason that Nehemiah likely had some influence 
on saying, hey, these guys, they should have uh, some amount of benefit. And they were supported so they could sing day and night. It says this in 1 Chronicles 9.33. It says, these are the singers, heads of the father's houses of the Levites, who lodged in the chambers and were free from other duties, for they were employed in that work day and night. So these guys lived in the temple court. They were singing to God day and night. That was their job. And I think if a corporation was running it, they would probably be the first ones to go. Right? They're not really bringing in the revenue. There's really, like, what what purpose do they serve? They're singers, right? Minstrels. Shouldn't they just go somewhere else and sing? You know, busk somewhere else. No. They were seen as necessary for the work of God. Because if God should have angels that proclaim his praises daily, constantly, isn't it fitting that in his place there would be people employed to that end? People not working for money but people who are doing that, who are supported to be able to worship God and to sing praises continually to him. It's a pretty cool idea. Singing is a service to God, leading others in worship. It's a blessing. God delights to hear that. Verse 25, And as for the villages with their fields, some of the children of Judah dwelt in Kirjath Arba and its villages, Dibon and its villages, Jakezabil, excuse me, Jakabzil and its villages, in Jeshua, Molada, Beth Palet, Hazar Shual and Beersheba and its villages, in Ziklag and Mekona and its villages, in Enrimen, Zora, Jarmuth, Zanoa, Adulam and their villages, in Lachish and its fields, in Azekah and its villages. They dwelt from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom. Also the children of Benjamin from Geba, dwelt in Mishmash, Aijah, and Bethel and their villages, in Anathoth, Nob, Ananiah, in Hazor, Ramah, Gitaim, in Hadid, Zeboim, Zebalat, in Lod, Ono, and the Valley of Craftsmen. Some of the Judean divisions of the Levites were in Benjamin. So the 90% who were not chosen to dwell in Jerusalem they return to their inheritance, the land given to them by God. <clears throat> so if you can, you may have a, a map in the back of your Bible, but there was a point where there was a split between the northern and southern kingdoms in Israel. Now, Benjamin's the buffer between Ephraim and Judah. And most of Benjamin was amalgamated into Judah. And so it's all called Judah. But Benjamin, Jerusalem is actually in Benjamin. It's right on the edge there. And everything else, northern kingdom, went away, and the southern kingdom remained. And it says here that some of the Levites lived among where the Benjamites were. So those Levites, who were of the tribe of Levi, serving the Lord in Judah, they ensured that the people were taught by God to fear his commands. So the northern country had been corrupted by idolatry, and it's like the Lord... uh, really removed them as dross from ore. And now he had this people whose hearts were unified after coming out of captivity. Only those who wanted to be there, right? God wants people who want him. He wants people who would volunteer to be with him and to do what he asked them to do. People who, it's not a burden to be a child of God. They actually want to be a child of God. He doesn't just uh, conscript us. He invites us. He makes a way for us. He does not force us to follow him. People were grateful to offer themselves to God. And may that be for us too, that we would offer ourselves willingly to God, individually to a place of surrender and also corporately as a body. I think often when it comes to the call of God, we can be like the servant, the son really in the vineyard, right? The dad has two sons. He said, son, work in my vineyard. And the first son says, I go, sir. You know, I respect you. You're my dad. Of course I will. But he didn't go. I find that I can be like that one. I can also be like the other one who said, no way. And later he felt bad about it and he went. I think we can find ourselves in those camps uh, quite often. 
Working in a vineyard is not a high-profile job. It's dirty work. You're going to stain your clothes. Your hands are going to be sore. Uh, it's not The pay is not amazing to work in a vineyard. But when we realize that we're privileged to serve God, whatever he calls us to do, no hour is too early if he bids us come. Like we were talking about fishing in the foyer right before church and thinking, like, how early is too early? Would you go fish? Is it a, is it a chore to get up at 2 a.m. to go fishing? Well, yeah. Unless you really love fishing. If you really love fishing, uh, then it's not too early. You just fit it right into your plans, right? And if, if you love spending time with God, if you think that He's worthy of that and He says, get up at 2 a.m., it's not a cha- it's not a chore to do so because you realize how awesome He is. Your sleep, and God, it's like, whoa, God's way more important than a couple hours sleep. What's that? You know, can't God sustain me? Yes, he can. Um, if we could only realize what Jesus has done for us, and if you could just put that picture of the temple up there one more time. You know, we are lawbreakers. We are Gentiles. Not one of us in this room has the right to walk into the temple courtyard, the outer court, not one of us. Now, one thing you were allowed to do as a Gentile was to give a sacrifice for someone else to offer. That's all you could do. You couldn't enter to put an offering in. You could not enter in. In fact, in Jesus' day, there was a stone, many stones that would warn people, if you enter as a Gentile, you're a dead man. You enter this on the pain of death. Uh, Josephus wrote about it. Um, in 1871, there was a stone discovered. It's called the Soreg Inscription. It says in Greek, No stranger is to enter within the balustrade round the temple and ex- enclosure. Whoever is caught will be responsible to himself for his death, which will ensue. That was the gatekeeper's job. If you cross in there and you are not, you are not a Jew, death penalty. Pretty severe, right? Like you couldn't even, let's not even talk about going in the temple. I'm talking about going in the outer court. You could not go in the outer court. You could not go in the inner court. You could not go into the temple. And you certainly could not go into the Holy of Holies. That's, we're infinitely far from God. He's unapproachable in holiness. But if you'll turn in your Bibles, we're going to close with this in Ephesians 2, verse 11. Now, hundreds of sermons could be preached from this text alone, and probably hundreds of thousands have. But I'm just going to read it to you. And I pray that it sinks into your souls what Jesus has done. That that stone that was blocking entrance to God, that has been pulled apart and pulverized. A way has been made to God through Jesus. It says in Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, who has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, 
in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We have, through the new covenant in Christ's blood, what no Jew had under the covenant of law, not even the high priest. We have access to God that they could not have dreamed of having because the scripture says, you, if you're born again, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit dwells within you. So all that, that's been done away and the Holy Spirit lives inside you. You have access to God. We are worthy of death. Jesus died so we could be born again. We were aliens, now we're citizens. We were strangers, now we're family. We were without hope, but now Christ is our hope and peace. We were far off, and now we've been brought near. We were cut off, we were separated from God, but now we've been made one, reconciled to God. We have access to God at all times. Think about what Jesus has done. Let's work with him. Let's seek him. And let's thank him. Amen. Father, thank you for just doing a remarkable work by sending Jesus to be the Savior of the world. Thank you for his blood that washes us of sin. Thank you for accepting us in the beloved. Thank you for all you've done, for calling us, for giving us stuff to do, for giving us jobs that bring glory to your name. Lord, you are an awesome God, and we worship you, we praise you, we desire your uh, strength to be evident in our lives. And, and Lord, if we've become weary in doing good, may we consider you and your suffering, lest we be weary in our souls. Thank you so much that you are a, an awesome God who has done everything for us. And we worship you, Lord. We thank you. We are grateful to be called your children in Jesus' name. Amen.